by clinical trainees and for clinical trainees, this is Well-Rounded. Well-Rounded is your resource for all things healthcare business and policy. Your host today is Dan Arteaga. This episode is about the story of Hahnemann University Hospital and what happens when a residency program shuts down. Joining us to share their experiences is Dr. David Eisenberg, a general internist at the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Nihal Karnick, an incoming GI fellow at SUNY Downstate. Welcome to Well-Rounded. Hi, listeners. This is Lauren. Before we hand it over to Dan for the interview, we wanted to give you a little bit of background into the Hahnemann University story. So in June of 2019, Hahnemann University Hospital, which is a safety net community hospital in Philadelphia, announced that it was filing for bankruptcy. And then within weeks, the hospital closed its doors, and this left both its employees and its vulnerable patients uncertain about their future. Nearly 600 residents were left without jobs, and that was the single largest displacement of resident trainees in the history of American medicine. So today we're talking with Dr. Eisenberg, the former director of the Hahnemann-Drexel Internal Medicine Residency Program, and Dr. Karnick, who was an internal medicine resident at the time of the closure. Okay, on to the episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dan with Well-Rounded. Doctors Karnick and Eisenberg, welcome so much to the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, seriously, thank you for organizing this. So Dr. Karnick, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like being a resident at a program that kind of closes in the middle of your residency? You know, it was pretty corporate in the way we found out. I think, you know, Dr. Eisenberg found out basically the same time we did. And there was just an announcement by folks from the corporate side, from the ownership side. Um, and it felt almost very cold and sterile for something that was such an emotional and, and tough experience. Um, and, you know, it's very trite to say, but it was a roller coaster of emotions. I mean, you're angry, you're sad, you're depressed, you're nervous. You have anxiety. And I think that it really, really put a toll on uh, a lot of people going through that process. Um, There were just a lot of things to deal with in terms of how do we relocate, where do we find new institutions, and so forth. But um, I think it was just a really gut-wrenching time is the best way to phrase it. Yeah, and just to add uh, real quick, um, you know, Nihal mentions uh, how everyone found out. It was pretty much at the same time, but I think one of the the most frustrating piece of this is is a lot of us found out through the media. You know, so the media actually knew before us. You know, they they were aware of the bankruptcy basically the same minute as us, and it was really hard to manage the message to our residents in a, a structured and a productive way. It was kind of you know, June 26th at 8 a.m., all chaos kind of broke loose. I cannot imagine how frustrating that must be, especially, you know, you were captain of the ship, Dr. Eisenberg, as the program director for the internal medicine program. What was it like finding new jobs for, I don't know, how many hundreds of people was it? Yeah, I think uh, it was overwhelming and really trying to balance and figure out, can we even place all of these people? Because this is you know, just to underline, this is a historic closure. This is the largest closure of an academic institution 
ever in the United States. And so no one really knew if there were going to even be enough spots for everyone. Um, in retrospect, that was kind of a silly worry at first. You know, we were doing all these back-of-the-envelope calculations, and it ended up that there were plenty of spots. It's just finding the right programs for people and finding geographic locations where they want to be. But it was the hardest thing that I think I've ever done, trying to really guide people to programs that met their career goals um, and also met their personal goals and also trying to motivate people to continue working because there were still patients in the hospital and still patients in clinic. And our residents really responded admirably. No one skirted responsibility. Everyone continued to work, even though this wound was festering throughout. And we we got it done, I think, in around 40 days. Everyone had a had a spot and was starting in a new program. That's that's amazing and a, and a testament to the hard work that you all did to respond to what was obviously a crisis. Dr. Karnick, what were the kind of conflicts that were coming up while you all were responding to this crisis? Um, it was the Wild West. It actually makes you appreciate the match that much more because the match is so structured. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people on match day who are bummed. I will tell you, the match is way better. It's way better. You know, the sequence of events is that I think, you know, we find out the hospital is closing and then Dr. Eisenberg and the medicine program, including our chair, Dr. Loggio, were working tirelessly along with other people to find institutions that were willing to take residents. So that's phase one. And then phase two is the um, programs then will send out, you know, though you all communicated with us via email about offers for an interview. I think all my interviews were over the phone. Some people had in-person interviews. And then you had interviews, which is, you know, pretty boilerplate or pretty similar to the match. And then when it really deviates, you know, a lot of us got offers that were exploding offers. Mm -hmm. You know, you would get an offer and they'd say, well, here, here's your offer, but we need you to make a decision in 48 hours. And you still were interviewing with other programs and you're really hedging like, gosh, yeah, I like this program, but I think this other program maybe fits my career needs a little bit better but I don't want to lose an opportunity just to chase one that I don't know if I have yet. I think it's really challenging. And I think the other thing that makes it incredibly hard is you're very vulnerable at that Mm -hmm. point, right? I mean, you find out your hospital's closed. In my case, I was applying for fellowship, but it doesn't really mean everyone else had all sorts of vulnerabilities. And you start thinking, well, gosh, um, you know, should I just take this offer and sort of have the stress abated And then I think the thing that compounds it even more is it's really uncharted territory for everyone. It's not like, you know, you're making your fellowship match list and you can talk to people who are in your corner that can outline ideas about what would be a good program for you or what are the pros and cons. It's sort of really uncharted territory and everyone's just shooting from the hip with the best intentions. Something you really stuck with me is, is you saying that the, the these interns and residents are in a place of vulnerability. You can't be a, a physician in the United States unless you go through residency, right? You have to complete residency. And if that residency spot is being taken away from you, you know, really the only thing that you can do is scramble, find find a new spot, find a residency program that will eventually graduate you. I can't imagine the the kind of stress that you all felt as uh, individually and as a class. Another thing that I wanted to get at that was um, a, a popular topic when reading about this issue is um, the issue of tail malpractice insurance. I, I have to believe that most people who are listening to this right now have never even heard of tail malpractice insurance. Dr. Karnick, had you heard of tail malpractice insurance before the situation at Hahnemann? I had definitely not heard of tail malpractice insurance uh, until a 
very somber email from Dr. Eisenberg, I think in December of 2019, we thought this was all behind us. And Dr. Eisenberg um, kind of emailed us and kept us informed. So no. Perfect. Dr. Eisenberg, what, what is tail malpractice insurance? And I guess what, what ended up happening there? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not an expert in malpractice insurance, thankfully. <laughs> but basically, there are two big forms of malpractice insurance. There's occurrence-based and claims-made malpractice insurance. But there's a less expensive malpractice insurance, which is claims-made, which basically just covers you when the policy is in place. And if a lawsuit comes in and the policy is still in place, it's, it's, you're, you're covered. You know, your, your legal fees and whatever happens is, is covered up to a point. But if the policy ends, then someone needs to purchase a tail on that policy. And that would cover you for X number of years or in perpetuity. The ACGME requires a tail policy to be purchased when that policy ends. And in fact, the residents all had contracts that stated that they would have that type of insurance that would cover them forever. So, you know, because care that's provided by residents in 2018, a lawsuit can happen five years later when they're no longer there and doing something completely different. And a tail for that type of policy would cover them for that. It was pretty complicated, but in this bankruptcy, what ended up happening was that the ownership and the hospital decided not to purchase this tail for the residents, leaving them potentially vulnerable, not just for the legal stuff, but also a lot of logistical things like medical licenses in certain states and also hospital credentialing that requires you to prove uninterrupted malpractice coverage. Thankfully, there was a lot of effort to publicize this, to, to really draw attention to this issue. And um, there were a lot of organizations that came to help. One in particular, the AMA, actually hired legal counsel to represent the residents. And I think that was a game changer because various things happened in court that actually pressured the ownership to go ahead and purchase the tail. And that is what eventually happened many months later and after a lot of work on behalf of a lot of people. Congratulations on a great outcome. I'm sure a ton of hard work went into that. Um, clearly, the finances were a, a pressure point um, for everyone involved. Can you help us understand a little bit more about the money? I know from just reading the news that the residency slots were eventually sold at auction. Is that something that typically happens? And, you know, do, do residency spots, do they make hospitals money? What's, what's the deal here? Yeah, I think everything about this situation is atypical. The ownership was really trying to be creative. And I think that's a, a kind term, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> They're really trying to be creative on how they could raise money. And residency slots have never been sold before. And what they tried to do was sell their entire residency slot batch that Medicare actually funds for the hospital and have that offset some of their debt. Medicare pays hospitals to train residents. Mm -hmm. The amount that they pay varies depending on which hospital is getting the residents. And those slots, typically if a hospital closes, goes back to Medicare and Medicare has a process in place to redistribute those slots where they feel they, they should be redistributed. But the ownership here tried to circumvent that, sell the slots, make some money, and basically get 
funding for slots to another hospital. So one conglomerate in Philadelphia won the bidding war and their bid was $55 million. And this was challenged in court by Medicare appropriately. And it was really dragging on. And so eventually that bid was withdrawn and there has been no court decision whether or not this is legal or not. But since they withdrew the bid and there was no one else willing to pay that money, those slots went back to Medicare and they're redistributing them now. And to kind of piggyback on that, I think sometimes, especially as residents, this is all a crash course about in economics, right? I mean, we were Googling all these terms. And I think the simplest way to think about it is if you go back to what Dr. Eisenberg said at the beginning, you know, this was a for-profit company that, by the way, is owned by a private equity firm. And they created Mm -hmm. this LLC. And they basically um, took on a lot of debt to buy the hospital in the first place. And when they decided to close the hospital, they declared bankruptcy. And in order to minimize their debt and to pay back their debtors, they basically engaged in creative financial decision-making, as Dr. Eisenberg said, in an effort to reduce the debt owned to debtors. So you were talking Mm -hmm. about the tail insurance. Well, tail insurance isn't cheap. So by not obtaining tail insurance, that's one way that they can help their bottom line. The sale of the residency slots is, again, one way to sell their asset in order to reduce their debt that they owe to debtors, which I think underscores this was a for-profit hospital that got involved with a hospital that served an underserved community And the two really don't have a great marriage. It doesn't work. You can't just look at a hospital and a community as a series of assets that you're going to sell or an investment, right? The investment has to be in the people in that community in general. To your point, Dr. Karnick, I I work at a safety net hospital um, in North Texas. I could not imagine the effect on the community if my hospital were to close. How has Hahnemann closing affected the community, your your patients uh, in, in the neighborhood in Philadelphia that it was serving? So I would say there's an emotional damage and then also a healthcare toll. So the emotional damage is, you know, so a lot of the patients at Hahnemann have been going there for decades. I mean, there were, we had so many patients that were born at Hahnemann. They received all their care. Their parents were patients at Hahnemann because it was a safety net hospital that took care of low-income people that needed care. And when the hospital closed, there were a lot of, lot of problems, right? So the, the abrupt nature of the closure was certainly problematic. So, you know, we talk about high-value care. A lot of these patients had to go to other institutions to get their care. And I can just say from anecdotal experience, it led to a lot of repeat testing of things that were already done at Hahnemann. And that underscores my second point. It's, it was really hard to get records from Hahnemann after it closed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually one of the biggest problems. Again, to go back to the point of let's reduce the amount of cost, let's look at the bottom line, there was no structure in place to transfer records, to you know maintain records for patients. And as a result, getting records from Hahnemann was near impossible. And I think a lot of our patients suffered. You know, it's sick patients who had complex medical problems, and they would kind of show up at a hospital and they had to start from scratch. Um, you know, I, there were so many cancer, you know, oncology patients who yeah. their, their chemotherapy regimens, no one knew. No one knew how many cycles of Folfox they'd had or what their staging was or you know, what radiation therapies they'd had. Uh, that's all, that's, that's uh, sobering to hear, certainly. This, is, this has been kind of a tough topic, and I appreciate your time talking about these things. I do think that at the end of the day that this is a story that does have some, some important lessons to take away from it. Dr. Eisenberg, you're probably the resident expert in the country for advocating for residents um, who are in kind of unfortunate circumstances. What was that like? And what lessons did you learn when it comes to advocating for residents? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, I think for me, with the hospital closing and all of the chaos, there were so many things I could have focused on. And for me, it was really easy to focus on the residents because there was a very clear mission. And what I learned early on was if you just keep that mission in mind and you just stay focused on everyone's got to get a spot and everyone's got to get a spot that will help their career goals, then you kind of use that as the as the guiding light uh, of, of what you do every day. And it actually simplified it in, in my mind because there was you know nothing else I was really, really thinking about. And so I learned that really clarifying your, your mission and clarifying what your priorities are in, in a time of crisis is really important. And I think anyone who's in medical education, especially medical education leadership, is really doing it for the learners and for the residents. And I think that crisis actually makes things very, very clear. And my advice is, if you really are passionate about helping people's career and helping people figure out what they want and, and how they can get it in their career, then advocacy actually comes pretty easily. And so if you're that person, get into medical education and mentoring. I think a strong note for us to end on. Uh, Drs. Eisenberg and Karnick, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for giving us your perspective on this, uh, this story at Hahnemann. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to another episode of Well-Rounded. To learn more about what happened at Hahnemann Hospital, you can read Dr. Eisenberg's article published in the Annals of Medicine called A Cautionary Tale, The 2019 Orphaning of Hahnemann's Graduate Medical Trainees. A link is on our website and in the episode description. Well-Rounded is made by Isabel Rosenthal, Dan Arteaga, and Lauren Tronick. Tommy Bazarian is our sound engineer, and our theme music is by R.O. Shapiro and Micah Motenko. For more information, visit wellroundedmed.com, and please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.